From Square Two, this is What's Wrong With Revenue. I'm Mike Lieberman, CEO at Square Two, and along with my longtime friend, Eric Kalis, and co-founder at Square Two and six-time entrepreneur, Eric and I will answer the question CEOs have every single day, what's wrong with revenue? You can be part of the Livecast show where we'll answer your questions every Wednesday at 4 p.m. Eastern, or catch the show on demand on YouTube and on all your favorite podcast networks. Also check out all our audio and video content on Square2 Plus at the square2marketing.com website. Enjoy the show. Hey everybody, Mike Lieberman, CEO and Chief Revenue Scientist here at Square2 Marketing, and I am the lucky host of What's Wrong with Revenue podcast, videocast, livecast. Thanks all for joining. Today's episode is about the sales process, and Eric, welcome back to the show. I'm, I know that you've had this date circled since we started the show. The sales process show has been at the top of your list of exciting things to do with this platform. So I know you're excited to talk about everything sales process today, right? Eagle Super Bowl sales process livecast right there. Exactly. Exactly. Awesome. Um, Everybody, just a little bit of housekeeping. If you're uh, following the show, follow us on YouTube. You can subscribe to the show on YouTube and get notified. Sorry. You can get notified when we post new shows. Also, the show is available on all your favorite podcast platforms, iTunes, Spotify, Podbean, Stitcher. We also host the show on our website. The What's Wrong With Revenue page is at the bottom in the footer. Go there. You can subscribe to the show and get notified. You can get emails with the show after the show's over. You can also submit questions, of which we have a ton of good questions today. We'll get to them. And on that page, we post all of the shows. So there are plenty of different ways for you to get access to our show when and uh, how you're interested in it. So one of the things that could potentially be wrong with revenue is you never focused on your sales process. It's not documented. It's not consistent. It's not designed. And specifically, it's not structured to help your prospects feel safe. You might think it's all about leads, but in reality, it's really not. It's about closing leads and turning those opportunities into revenue. And it's very, very possible that if you're having trouble with revenue, your sales reps are not doing the same thing consistently. You may have some reps that work with prospects one way, other reps that work with process work with reps a different way. And if you're all not doing, if they're all not doing things the same way, it's going to be very difficult to optimize the process. It's going to be very difficult to measure how effective the process is. It's going to be very difficult to support the process. There's so much to this in the show today. We're going to dig into all of it. We're going to talk about documentation. Why is that so critical? We're going to talk about how tools like the CRM make this easier. We're going to talk about the data in the sales process and hopefully help you uncover some gaps or as we like to call friction in your sales process. We'll talk about metrics and we'll talk about who's responsible for this. So Eric, this is your, this is your Christmas. What, what, what do you got to add to this to kick us off? Um, one, let me set the table. People call marketing companies like square two, and they usually, and I mean, 99.9% of the time want more leads. 
And by just looking at the other end of the buying journey, the close rate, it starts a whole new conversation about generating revenue where people will typically lean into the fact I need more leads to grow my business. I think this episode is very important to open some folks' eyes about it's not always about leads. It's about what can we do to generate revenue? I mean, heck, the name of the show is what's wrong with revenue, right? A lot of times a 9% close rate should be flashing red and people ignore it. 100%. So I'd like to start with something we talk to prospects about frequently, and that is whether their sales process is documented and whether it's uh, visual so that people can understand it. I mean, look, let's be honest. The sales process is a, it's a flow, right? Leads come in, they can hand it off to reps, reps manage those leads. They qualify them. They talk to those people. They share information. Uh, they, they should be executing some standard interactions and sending them additional communication to keep the process moving. They should be you know, scoring them in some way so that somebody has some idea of how likely this prospect is to close and eventually getting them to sign something. So it's a fluid process. It, it should be documented and, and looked at as a flow chart. There's a beginning, there's a middle, there's an end. And we talk to clients very frequently about documenting in a visual, in a visual way what that sales process looks like. So uh, let's talk about that a little bit. What are, what, Eric, what do you think some of the advantages are of a company having a documented visual sales process of which they can use to keep reps um, on the same page? Well, now I'm talking to the CEOs in the audience, right? Wouldn't you like to know with confidence what you're going to do next month? Well, if you don't have any kind of sales process and you don't have definitive stages of the sales processes and metrics and numbers assigned to those, how the heck can you forecast? How can you project what's going to happen uh, in your company? And you're completely flying blind on one of the biggest metrics around, which would be revenue. By putting it together into a documented sales process and agreeing to the stages of the documented sales process, now we agree. We're going to take prospects through, let's say, five stages. And each stage, we're going to assign a percentage of closing or a uh, you know dollar amount or something so that you can start to get a feel for like, how is the pipeline performing and how is it affecting revenue? And I would say of the hundreds and hundreds of prospects that I've spoken with over the course of the year, uh, course of the years around this topic, less than 10% have a documented sales process. Yeah, I can answer your question. I know how people do it without any kind of process, the sales team gets together and either sales leadership or the CEO says, okay, tell me how we're doing this month. John, how many are you going to close? Who you got that's hot? You know, what percentage do you think it's going to be? And that's how they do it. They literally, and that might be in a spreadsheet or it could even be in the CRM in terms of the reps, optimistic projections on who's going to close and when and, and for how much. Um, well, that's, that's actually the problem. It's subjective, right. not objective. Right. And, and let me ask you, how, how do sales reps generally categorize their opportunities? They're all going to close. They're a very optimistic group of people, aren't they? Right. Everything's they positive. Are. I'm going to do great this month, boss. Don't worry. I got you covered. And then uh, the month comes and they didn't do as well as they thought they were going to do. What do they say? Well, you know, I couldn't get so-and-so to close and 
this other guy got pushed to, to next month and this one was on vacation. I couldn't, you know, like it, it's all very kind of haphazard and not very scientific. And I think that's really where we're coming from is a documented sales process that has some other things, which we'll cover today in the show attached to it can go a long way to turn this relatively unscientific approach that Eric and I are kind of teasing everybody about into something much more scientific and much more easy to, to forecast. And when you can forecast accurately, you can get your operations team to be aligned. You know, you, can, you, you know how your marketing is doing. It, it, it knocks down a bunch of dominoes when that's really working well. Wouldn't you agree? Absolutely. I mean, at square two, this is typically, uh, sorry, we're talking to you in December of 2021. We're typically very busy in January and February, and this year is no different. We are just swamped right now with new opportunities and closing deals. So by having a documented sales process, Kristen, our COO, has visibility into what are the percentages of uh, deals that are going to close. And she is now preparing for January, 22 days in advance, to make sure we have the right staffing and the right people and the right resources and maybe a contractor or two if we're super busy. That's all uh, on her for pre-planning, as opposed to the company who they all hit at the same time and they're caught with their pants down. Yeah, and actually, as we were discussing yesterday, she's actually planning for February already because yeah. we know how busy January is going to be. We don't want to bring on a client if we can't take good care of them. So, you know, some of this business may roll into February already. That's but she needs to know that so she can plan accordingly. Exactly. So, you know, giving a operations person access to the CRM and sharing the reporting that comes from the documented sales process from the CRM now automates the information flow from sales to operations. You don't have to have a huddle about it. She knows what six of them have reached the, reached the verbal commitment stage. I better get my act together from an operations perspective. Yeah. In fact, our CRM actually notifies her when we get those verbals and she can start planning for it. So that's a great transition. Let's talk about the CRM. So if you, by the way, if you don't have a documented and visual sales process and you're interested in what that might look like, shoot me an email. I'm happy to share a number of examples of what a visual and documented sales process might look like. Mike at squaredtomarketing.com. I'm happy to send that over to you if you want to see what that looks like. But Eric, let's assume we have that. We're doing a good job. We've, we've documented it. Everyone's bought in. How would we go about installing this into the CRM, because that's really where you're going to get compliance by the sales reps, right? The, the CRM is the tool that all the reps are using. It's the single point of truth around sales. Uh, and how would a sales process that's in the CRM keep everybody on the same page uh, adhering to our new sales process? Well, I'll use the HubSpot CRM, my favorite, and the one that I'm in all day, every day, as an example. HubSpot understands that if you have a documented sales process, you now have to put that into some kind of technology tool. So you can set it up a variety of ways, but for the simplicity of our uh, conversation today, let's use each stage of the sales process as a different column on the CRM uh, 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 dashboard. And as they're moving from one to another, the uh, CRM is updating all of the statistics that are necessary. How many people do we have that reached out to us that are just leads? And then, oh, those folks scheduled um, those calls to have a discovery call. Great. We move them to the next column. Now they're in a different phase. Oh, we had the discovery call. Gee, they weren't a good fit for our company. I referred them out to somebody else. Their closed loss with the reason 
that they're closed loss. That goes into a separate report. Wait a minute, they qualified in, and now we have to do our diagnostic meeting. As soon as I move it to the next column, it triggers automatically all sorts of things to happen. Now, the conversion of your visual sales process into a CRM is crucial because everybody has to agree when a, a prospect moves from one classification to the next, and then certain things have to happen. So for example, when I drag a card from one column to another in a CRM, we have a program that it'll automatically send out updates. And Mike just said, when I drag it from recommendations to verbal a verbal commitment, that automatically sends an email to all the people that have to know that a new deal is coming down the pike. There's no uh, question that the email doesn't go out. There's no, I forgot to do that. It's just automated. So the biggest challenge is defining what each stage is and making sure that it's correct in the CRM. But that's basically it. It's the conversion of this kind of like written or visual sales process into a technology tool that is now managing that. Now, I just wanna go down one other road here for a second. When you have a great sales process and it's set up correctly in your CRM, it enables an individual salesperson to work on so many different opportunities. And that's important to our listeners today as well, because we don't wanna hire more salespeople and manage them. We wanna get more efficiency out of our existing sales force. So if you're thinking, ah, I got some spreadsheets and I get the guys together once a month and we talk about that, that's perfectly fine, but you're losing so much efficiency and spending so much more effort than you could with a simple $300 a month CRM tool. Yeah, I think that's a really good point. And we've heard it lots of times. Well, I, I'd like to grow my company. I'm going to hire more sales reps. I think that's a common go-to for CEOs who are looking for growth. Well, if I did 10 million with five reps, I can probably do 12 million with six reps, right? So let me just hire another rep. And I think what you're saying is you might be able to do 12 million with five reps. You might be able to do 12 million with four reps. And I think that's a really good point. Today, growth is not contingent on the number of reps. It's more about the efficiency of those sales reps that you have and a documented sales process, a CRM that is keeping everybody on the same page, automating a lot of things that they probably had to do manually in the past is one way to drive that efficiency in your rep team. I think if you take nothing away from today's session, uh, that would be the only, if you took nothing else away from it other than that, you'd be ahead of the game. You know, a lot of our clients actually started learning this during COVID for some reason. I think because sales reps had to work differently during COVID, they didn't need as many reps. They were doing just as much revenue with less reps because they were doing it smarter. They were using tools and they were following a process that was perfectly aligned with the way their prospects wanted to buy and, and wanted to work with them. So that's a pretty big takeaway uh, from today's session for sure. Let me sprinkle a bit of strategy on top of what you just said, Mike. Okay. More uh, sales out of less people. That also has to go strategically with how you qualify a prospect. So you and I uh, agreed years ago that we would develop what we call the pain power fit qualification system. It's a system of 15 points, five points maximum for pain, five points maximum for power, five points maximum for fit. And then we defined what is power. Power is, are we talking to the person that's going to write the check? 
fit is, is this a good fit for the kind of work that we typically do and we can succeed? And uh, pain is, how likely are they to hire us based upon the problems they have, right? So if I don't hire square two, I'm gonna go out of business next week is a pain score of five. Oh, I'm thinking it might be a nice to have to maybe fix up my website a little bit sometime next year, that's a pain of one. So when you took pain power fit and you gave each one of those individual scores of one through five and aggregated them into an overall score, we agreed as a company that we would not pursue any deal that wasn't at least 10 out of 15, which means that the salesperson has to either work with them to bring the score up like, hey, I know you're the office manager, but we really should get a call with your CEO. Immediately, that power score could go up two or three points if you get the CEO on the phone. Or, oh, you're on Pardot? Well, if you're interested in switching to HubSpot, that would be a better fit for our firm. If you're open to that, I think that that would be a really good uh, strategic fit. Okay, great. They're switching to HubSpot. Their fit goes up and so forth and so on. But the deal is, is that if you don't work with anybody that's over 10 out of 15 on that scale I just mentioned, that's a lot fewer prospects that get into the sales process, which means that your reps can spend a lot more time with those individual people, increasing your chances of closing that. So Mike, you're right about that takeaway of the CRM, but also the strategy around the CRM and the agreement of the team on how we're going to use the CRM. A lot of times people say, I have a close rate of 10%. But when we dig into that, their calculation is from lead to close deal. It really shouldn't be that way. It should be from uh, SQL or sales qualified lead to close deal. Because if people aren't qualified, why are you saying that you didn't close them? They're not qualified to begin with. And that's where really understanding the terminology and the parameters around each stage and what the definitions are on the front end now makes your sales process more efficient. I would say, honestly, that eight out of every 10 leads that we get at square two qualify out, meaning I try to refer them to another firm that would be a better fit for what they're looking for, which leads that I could only work on 20 uh, 5% of the, no, 20% of the overall leads are the ones I'm working on, not 100%. Now I really do need more people, which would just be a waste anyway, because 80% of those leads are unqualified. Yeah, that makes a ton of sense. There's a lot of qualification methodologies out there that people might be familiar with, like BANT is another one. You know, pain power fit is something that I learned a long time ago from a sales executive that I worked with that we just brought over here at Square Two. It's it's almost similar in its concept to Bant. It's just maybe a little bit easier uh, for us, but it's a good point. And just to add a little color to that, you know, if something, whatever your threshold is for a rep to follow up on something, it doesn't necessarily mean it's not a good opportunity. It just means maybe that it's not a good opportunity for that rep at that time. So. You know, in our case, if something scored a nine, we might continue to market to them. It just doesn't mean, it just means Eric's not spending any time, his personal time on it. So it's not as if it's a bad opportunity. It's just not an opportunity that warrants a sales rep's time. So, you know, consider that too. Also, oh, wait, Mike, using- that's a good example, but like I just had one where they said, yep, we're, we're working on raising money. We're expecting our money in Q1. So I said, Chances of them getting their money in Q1 could be 100% or 0%. I don't know. I'm the outside person. I said to them, listen, why don't we pick up the conversation when you're just about to uh, receive the money you raised because they can't move forward with us until they get their funding. 
So, right. I mean, it takes a little confidence or perhaps a little chutzpah to say, call me back when your money comes in, but I could go through the whole process and like, this is great. And then the money never comes and I wasted six total hours of conversations and uh, proposal work. Well, I mean, I think in that case, the pain would have been a, lo a low score. So it would have qualified out. Like, you know, if, if they needed us immediately in advance of their funding, pain would be higher. But without that sequence, it, it, it's got to be lower, right? If you follow that scoring model out too, you'll find that deals that score 14 and 15 generally close in 30 days. You're talking to power, you're talking to their pain is acute and it's a perfect fit. So we talked about forecasting earlier. There's another data point that helps forecast too. If I was the sales manager and I was even sitting around with a group of sales reps and I was asking them about their opportunities, if I'm using the scoring model that Eric shared with you, I'm not even really interested in anything that's lower than 14, right? And if it's 13, my question is, well, what are we doing to get it to be 14 or 15? If it's 12, what are we doing to get it to uh, 14 or 15? So that's another really good way to think about optimizing uh, a rep's time. Uh, also, you know, we didn't really talk much about this, but the sales process really has a couple of very simple objectives behind it. One, no one's hiring you, in, in, no one's picking your company or buying your products or service or hiring you unless you make them feel safe. And that sales process has to be designed to get them to feel safe. And if, if there aren't the right touches, if there's not the right content, if there's not the right information sharing, if you're not asking the right questions at the right time, you know, if you haven't married your process to their, the way they specifically want to buy or the process that they want to go through, you're going to run into issues with getting them to feel safe. And you may even, you may not even know that you're putting these uh, roadblocks up. For example, you know, if you don't have a, uh, if your close rate after you submit a proposal or an agreement or a contract is low or elongated, it could be that your contract's just very legal. And when they look at it, they get uncomfortable. They get anxious. They get nervous. They need someone who has a uh, more of a legal acumen to look at it because the business people just are not comfortable reviewing it. You know, you might feel like, hey, this is my contract and this is, protects me and I need this. That's all fine. But understand that that could be putting up a lot of friction and roadblocks in your sales process and making it more difficult for you to close more deals. So Again, that's a, a lens that I would suggest you look at your sales process when you're starting to put it together um, and starting to use some kind of scoring to decide who's qualified and not qualified. And the next topic we're going to get into pretty quickly is data and metrics. You know, if you are managing a sales process properly and you do have metrics associated with it, you may uncover that there are steps in the process that are not working like they should be, like the one I just described. So I wanna talk about data and metrics a little bit, Eric, and then we're gonna get some questions because we have a lot of them and I wanna get to all of them. So um, what kind of data should people be considering when it comes to evaluating their sales process and where those metrics come from? How should they be tracking them? Uh, how frequently should they be looking at that data? Give us a little bit of your riff on that side of things. Yeah, so 
the sales team can't do their job unless they have opportunities, right? So how do we uh, put metrics to opportunities? The first thing is the marketing team has to be generating qualified leads. Now, those leads are not always sales qualified, but that would be the first metric, right? In my agreement with the marketing department, they promised to give me 50 qualified leads a month. Okay, great. Number one, are those leads qualified or all 50 qualified? Let's say that 45 of them are great. That's enough for me based on historical numbers to then get to my number. Okay, I got 45 leads. How many of those, when I put them through the first call, qualify them in? So the first step would be, I reached out to a, a sales opportunity. I had a call and how many of them qualified in? because we got to know what the funnel looks like from beginning to end. The sales process has a metric assigned to each stage. So all of a sudden, if I have a bunch of leads and I had discovery calls with each one of those leads and really only 10% of them qualified in, I got to go to work with my marketing team to say, hey, you're attracting the wrong kind or not enough of the right kind of leads for me. So that's the first metric, because if I don't have enough qualified sales opportunities, there's no way that I could hit my revenue quota. So that's number one. Number two is now that I are a sales qualified lead, how many of them are engaged from a, uh, we put our hand up because we want to work with this prospect and the prospect says, we want to work with you. So they could be qualified. I could be pitching a giant company, but they have no real interest in working with me. I got to figure that out. How I figure that out also is another metric with days. How many days does it take for them to schedule the next meeting, the next call? So I sometimes look at that when I know that someone is like a uh, hot and I send them here three times, we could schedule our next meeting and they reply within the hour, man, that's a good lead. Their pain is acute. They like what we said on the first call. So I'm looking at days in between the meetings. Now, the CRM can help you with that because it knows how many days were in between when you move the card from one category to the next. And we could say, oh, our average days in between the categories is 30 days. Oh, that's too long. Let's see if we could really move that down. And that's when you come to the table to now brainstorm. So I'll give you a quick personal example. In between the time we gave our client, our prospects at square two, the final recommendations, and then uh, we were waiting for it to close. The days were like numbering like 20 or 30 way back when. Do you know why? Because they were all asking for references. That's the point where they want to talk to the references. Nah, the references don't answer their emails or they don't answer their phones and they uh, sometimes, you know, will be a little bit on vacation or whatever. And it's just bogging the process down. So I believe, Mike, you came up with the idea for the reference reel. We got about 20 of our clients. We sent them uh, cameras or they did it on their own cameras. I can't remember. And they recorded video testimonials, which we then stitched into about a two and a half minute reference reel. Now, after we give them the recommendations, we send them a link. Hey, here are some clients just like you. Not only did it expedite the close, but it also cut the days because they didn't have to ask for references. And we weren't bugging our existing clients to answer calls all the time to be a reference on us. So when you look at something like that, the metric said 30 days is unacceptable. Let's get together and see how we can cut this in half to 15 days. And the idea of a piece of content like a reference reel was the uh, manifestation of that brainstorming session and we were able to accomplish our goal. So that's, that's where applying point. metrics to all the stages, not only give you an understanding of what's working, but it then gives you the insights on things you can do to make those numbers better. Great point, great point. By the way, if you are interested in tracking days for stage, you have to do some special uh, 
I wouldn't call it coding, but you have to set your CRM up to timestamp when something moves. So it's generally not every CRM is out of the box configured to do that. It's kind of a, a 201 or a 301 um, upgrade to the CRM. So if that is something you're interested in, just be aware that that might take a little bit of uh, extra effort to get it set up properly, but it should be set up like that. You're going to want to know that for sure. sure. It's a super powerful number to yeah. track. By the way, I didn't mention, if you want to see the reference reel that we created, that we send to prospects, hit me up at eric at square2marketing.com and I'll send you a link to that video. It literally cut two weeks off our closing process. And I suggest you do the same as, as a, a salesperson. By the way, we actually send a video kit to almost all of our clients that are willing to be references and do a video like that. And they all now record videos like that. And we do lots of different things with it. Sometimes they make it into the reference reel. Sometimes they're on our website or we use it in other marketing campaigns. So um, collecting video from your clients is way easier than it ever has been. So again, if you're interested in some details on that too, just uh, hit me up and I'll share it with you. All right, Eric, you wanna do some questions? Love the questions. Okay, so this is from Karen in Austin. Uh, getting all the reps to follow the same process seems highly unlikely and a big lift. Why do you think it's so important? We're doing pretty good now. Why mess with it? Well, we're doing pretty good now is the key phrase there. Do you not want to do better, Karen, from Austin? Of course you do. And by making some simple adjustments, that's how you could really be better. Now, I'll tell you right now, anybody that asks that question is sheepish about asking their people to change their behavior. So gather up the confidence, Karen from Austin and say, hey guys, these are the reasons why we wanna make this process uniform. These are the reasons why, let them understand. Now, to be honest with you, Karen from Austin, not gonna get all of them to agree because Tony's been with us 17 years and he hits his quota most of the time and he's a nice guy and we don't wanna change or rock the boat, especially now in a time where it's tough to get new people on board. But I gotta tell you, you gotta do the hard work to um, make sure that you have standardization on your sales process so that you can get all the benefits that we've been talking about in the first 30 minutes of today's live cast. Awesome. All right. I got a question from Mark in Philly. He's a local guy. Can you give us a few specific examples of how technology would help us stick to a designed sales process? Sure. So in the CRM, there's reporting that goes on. Mike even though he's not in sales per se, is privy to everything that I'm doing on the other side of the fence because we've set up notifications on different activities or stages. So for example, if I pull across one and it's closed lost and it doesn't seem right, Mike is saying to me, hey, how can we lost that one? And then I could give the reasons. So, you know, technology enables us to have communication, automated communication amongst the key stakeholders in a company to really understand. Now, I actually might not even be aware of things that are going on, but someone objective might say, gosh, Eric, I got a lot of these that you put in the stalled column. What the heck is the stalled column and why are we even using that? I put it there when someone says we won't be ready for six months to do that. And then I set myself a reminder to follow up. And I set an automated email uh, as a task for five months from now, because that's what they requested. Actually, I do it three months, even though they said six months. And the point I'm trying to make is that by doing that, maybe that's not the right technique. And other people that are watching what's going on from a metrics and activity point of view through the technology can say, hey, let's eliminate the stalled column. And here's what we could do to uh, say these people that are on six month call me back kind of systems, we can do something different. I don't know. I'm just making it up. But the point I'm trying to make here is that 
technology gives us insights. It gives us data. It gives us all sorts of uniform and standardization like uh, Karen from Austin just uh, received. And that's why I think it's so critical that technology has to be implemented. Yeah, I'll give you a couple examples too, Mark. So you, okay, so if we can back up just a second. You want your prospect, okay, every company has a limited number of prospects. No company has an unlimited number of prospects. So the goal of the sales process is to get as many of those sales leads to become customers, right? And I, I'm, I'm agreeing with not all of them are gonna be qualified. So I guess it's getting the, the most number of sales qualified leads to be customers. In order to do that, you have to have the best, most optimized process, okay? You have to design that process. So to answer your specific question, an example of how technology helps you stick to a process is, when you know that after your initial in-person conversation, sending the following email with the following piece of additional education or information moves a prospect along more frequently than any other email or any other piece of content, you want every single sales rep to send the exact same email with the exact educational content at exactly the same time. And I'm, I'm simplifying this because obviously if you're talking to a CFO, you would send the CFO email on the CFO content. If you're talking to the CEO, you would send the CEO email on the CEO content, but you get where I'm going. There's very specific designed steps that are taken, designed tools that are used, designed communication that gets sent out. You don't really want a rep to rewrite that email every single time they're done with their first call. You want them to go to a drop down list, pull down the right email, attach the right uh, a file and send it along because everyone in the entire company knows that that motion produces the best result. And I probably could not even come up with a better example of how technology makes that easy for everybody to do the same thing at the same amount, at, at the same exact time. And you're going to have a number of those uh, examples. You're going to have a number of conversations that you have with um, prospects along the way, right? Uh, I mean, we probably have, what do we have? One, two, three, four, probably five or six personal interactions with prospects in the square two sales process. And all of those have uh, some type of follow-up, some kind of educational content that goes along with it. Eric talked about the reference reel that gets sent at a very specific time before they ask for references. You don't want to send that after they ask for references you want to beat them to the punch. If you wait for after they ask, they'll be like, okay, that's nice, but I still want to talk to people. If you send it before, you look proactive. You look like you are you got your act going on, like, and they don't even get a chance to ask. So that's a sales process change that we made when we realized this point in the process is better than this other point in the process. You got to look at it like that. And that probably uncovers a ton of specific examples about how the technology piece of it would make the process more efficient, more effective, and allow you to turn sales qualified leads into new customers at a much higher clip. Quick uh, add on to that, Mike, you know, when you say send this email at this time, you're really saying send this email from the template that we've created and perfected over time. 
that template is stored so that the salesperson doesn't have to write the email over and over again. They say, open template number three, send. And that way it's exactly the way we want it. Yeah, absolutely. Okay, so Eric, um, this will be a favorite question of yours. This is from Laura in San Francisco. She said, can you talk about what you mean by friction? I've heard you use this before. Specifics, please. So we, we mention this sometimes. We don't always go into detail about what friction means, but help, help everybody understand what friction in the sales process means. Well, the definition of friction is two things rubbing together, right? Mm -hmm. The uh, two things rubbing together uh, make a uh, moving uh, object slow down, right? Because we want it to be smooth without rubbing against anything. So it goes as fast and easy as possible. And I think a great example is the one you used before, the agreement. We used to have a lot of friction when we sent the agreement because it was 20 pages that was developed by an attorney. Then when we saw how long it took to come back because of the friction, now I got to get legal involved. Now I got uh, I got to schedule something with my attorney, right? All those things were friction, slowing it down. We went back to our attorney. We said, put this into regular English and make it no more than three pages. Only put in the things that are going to bite us in the butt if this uh, relationship turns sour. And we also said to ourselves strategically, listen, if someone wants to not pay their bill or basically screw us, they're going to screw us whether the document is 20 pages or three pages, Right. After we changed gears and we went to a three-page document, immediately those days sped up like we talked about before. And the reason was that we took the friction out of the process. Um, let's say, as another point, you are not immediately scheduling the next step in the previous step. Hey, this was a great call, Charlie. Let's get out our calendars right now and see when we can schedule the next call. If you don't do that and get their acceptance of the next stage, now they get off the phone. You now send them an email a few hours later. By the way, they're out to dinner and uh, they slept late the next day and they had a big meeting and a conference and they didn't get back to your email. You added friction by not getting their commitment to the next thing right there on the phone. Now, if, my, if I work correctly and my schedule is open enough, I can schedule that meeting in a day or two. But just by adding in those extra steps of let's schedule it after, now I might have that meeting 10 days later, which gives my competitors opportunities to jump in there, more friction, which also makes sure that they rethink their original strategy. Maybe we won't hire a marketing agency. Maybe we'll get an internal person. But if I can take the friction out and, and cycle that sales process as quickly as possible, that's only in my favor. Makes great sense. I mean, friction, by the way, it's not just a sales term. There's marketing friction too. A common example is um, if you're going to make someone fill out a form on your website, as opposed to just give them the content. So gated versus ungated, there's friction in the form fill process, right? I got to give you my information. What are you going to do with it? Do I really want to give you that information? Do I really know you enough to share that information with you? There's friction there, right? Roughly not even probably less than 10% of the people are actually going to want to fill out that form. You're preventing the other 90% from reading your educational content and getting to know you better. So friction is all through the sales and marketing process. It's in the customer service process too. In general, you want to look at your entire revenue cycle soup to nuts and, and really make sure that there is as little friction as possible. Sometimes you're going to need some friction just to do business, but really make sure there's as little friction as possible. So I got a great question. 
This is from Dave in Scotland. I actually know Dave. He's a, actually a pretty interesting guy. He's a professional ballroom dancer, and he loves playing golf in the winter, two things you don't typically hear too frequently. Though Dave has a good question. He, he want, what, measure, what measurable improvements have you seen with companies who've added a process like the one you're describing? So I got a couple that I was thinking about, Eric, and then you can chime in if you have a couple others. Uh, so measurable improvements you've seen with companies who've added a process like the one we've been talking about. Well, I think the first one is close rate. And that, that I, exactly, I'm talking about close, exactly what I was thinking, Mike. I mean, that's I'm like talking about close rate, close rate from there. Look, there's lots of ways to measure close rate, like Eric said, but I think the simplest is I submitted a proposal or I gave somebody my recommendations and, you know, are we going to win the deal? I think when you, when you ask people what your close rate is, I think that's where most people go. Um, what percentage of proposals did we win? They view that as the close rate. So Again, if you're if if you're actively working on the sales process, the close rate should absolutely improve. And and by the way, this is where you should probably focus initially your energy around sales process because this is the best place to improve revenue. And I can give you some quick math on this, and then I'll rattle off a couple of other um, measurables. And then Eric, you can chime in too. If you have a twenty percent close rate, if you're closing two out of ten proposals submitted, and you could find a way to get that to forty percent closing four out of 10 proposals submitted, you'll double your revenue. I want to just repeat that because I, for some reason, a lot of people don't understand this or don't think this is legitimate. You'll double your revenue if you improve your close rate by two times. Even if it's 10% and you get it to 20%, you'll double your revenue. So I think you have to start looking there when it comes to sales process and metrics, right? And we talked a lot about what could potentially be causing you to lose deals at the end of the stage. Your contract could be too complicated. You, and we've seen a lot of people when it comes to actually presenting the final recommendations, you talk about yourself for 80% of the time, 20% of the time, you talk about what you're going to do for the client, flip that around, spend 80, spend 90% of the time talking about how you're going to help the client. 10% of the time talking about you. They don't need to know about you at that stage in the process. They already know who you are. So don't, don't spend time doing that. You know, make sure that they have all the information they need to make a decision, not like, well, we'll get you that. So you can decide, you know, uh, Eric does a wonderful job socializing and co-creating our recommendations before we even get to the recommendations meeting. So we don't surprise people at the end with a big number that they've never seen before or a configured uh, agreement, uh, configured solution that they didn't buy in on. So there are so many things you can do at the end of your sales process to improve your close rate and you don't have to get it to 80% to improve revenue. So that's obviously the place to start. Sales cycle days, Eric talked about that. Average revenue per new customer, uh, another good metric on how well your sales team is doing and how well your sales process is working. You should be looking for improved month over month goal attainment. So, you know, if you're 5% over goal this month, you want to be 7% over goal next month. Look at rep retention. Um, this is huge. You know, the great resignation, people are leaving in droves. Like, are your reps leaving? Are you having to replace them? That's going to slow down your growth. It's going to make taking care of prospects much more difficult. If your reps are, if there's a revolving door with your sales team and they're constantly leaving, you're constantly bringing new people in, you're constantly training your reps. 
that's not good for revenue. That's not going to help you. So I would identify why they're leaving and start looking at ways in which you can retain them as well. Any others you want to add, Eric? No, that was really great de definition. Awesome. Um, and again, that's really scratching the surface. I mean, you could look at conversion rates every step of the way and whether those are reasonable or not. And like we've said in other shows, I wouldn't worry too much about any kind of averages. I would, I would just baseline this out for your company and say, you know, our conversion rate from one deal stage to the next deal stage is X. And we want to just make it better next month, right? So if it's 50%, let's try to make it 55%. If it's 80%, let's try to make it 83%, right? The higher up you get, generally the harder it is to drive improvements, but simple month over month, modest improvements, when you add them all up by the end of the year, you're going to be killing it. And this is something that a lot of people tend to miss, I think. All right, let's see. A uh, couple more questions here. Uh, let's see. How, um, I'll skip that one. That's a good one, but maybe we don't have to cover that. Okay, this is uh, actually, we talked about that too. <laughs> all right, here we go. Okay, so this circles back to something we talked about a couple of shows ago, sales operations, right? So this question is from Lindsay in South Carolina. Can you give us a high level job description of a sales operations role? And I think this is interesting because the sales process concept is something that sales operations should own. So we talked about sales operations before. It's, the, it's someone in the company who is responsible for kind of supporting sales from an operations perspective. They're intimate with the data. They're intimate with the technology. They're, they're making the optimization upgrades that we've been talking about. They're getting feedback from sales on what's working and not working. They're interacting with sales leadership to provide insights into what's working and not working and get leadership on board with some of the changes that might be recommended. So um, in terms of a high-level job description for someone in this position, I think they have to have a systems and a process mentality. And there is a certain personality for people that think about process. A lot of those people have engineering backgrounds, believe it or not. And this might sound weird for sales and marketing, but when Square Two runs into potential prospects who used to be engineers, they tend to be good clients of ours because we think in a very systems and process oriented way. First, we have to do this, then we have to do that, then we have to do this, then we have to do that. Engineers tend to like that. Um, which is similar to what you would want in a sales operations role. You want people to be very oriented to following instructions and creating instructions and following process and optimizing process. So, you know, a high level job description would probably be someone that maybe spent some time in sales, understands sales, maybe someone in marketing who is very closely aligned with sales. But I think primarily, they have to have this orientation around process, wanting to install the process, being comfortable enough with technology to use the technology to support the process. And then they have to be really good at communicating the whys behind that to sales reps. Sales reps, I think in general, and I know I'm probably kind of, you know, stereotyping sales reps or generalizing sales reps, but they're pretty independent generally. I think you go into sales when you feel like you want to just do your thing and not be bothered too much by other people in the organization. And a lot of what we're talking about today is a little contrary to that. So you're going to need someone that is able to sit down with the reps and explain to them what's in it for them. 
that's generally also an alignment with, with a sales rep's personalities. What are they going to get out of it? And there's a ton they get out of this. So if someone can communicate that to them effectively, they're going to become your champion as opposed to, you know, an obstacle, an obstacle in, in terms of getting some of this done. You want to add anything to that? Well, I, I like to frame it in uh, buckets of high payoff and low payoff activities. And I don't mean, you know, uh, uh, busy work. For a salesperson, the highest payoff activity is working with the prospect, asking questions, strategizing on the solution, communicating. Low payoff activities for sales rep, for salespeople, are setting meetings, creating proposals, and doing follow-ups. And that's where you have to look at it. Now, an engineering type person in sales operation, a high payoff activity for them is executing a defined process, right? They're excited about that. They're not excited about going to a networking event with meatballs on a stick and glasses of wine and meeting lots of people to turn them into opportunities. So it's a nice complement between what brilliance lies in the salesperson and what brilliance lies in the sales operations person, and then putting those two together to get maximum results. That's a great point. And who's going to turn down meeple on a stick? Everybody loves meeple on a Love stick. Love a good meeple, except for a little lamb chop. That's a little better. Yeah, but you don't get those nice lamb chops at those networking events. No, you get the meeple on the stick. That's what you get at the fancy wedding, the lamb chop. That's right. <laughs> yeah. All right, I got one more question here, and then we'll wrap up for the day. And this is a good one. This is from Ron in D.C., how important is alignment with marketing when you talk about sales process improvements? So you want to uh, share a little bit of your thoughts on that? Yeah. I mean, we've talked many times and written a whole book called Fire Your Sales Team Today about sales and marketing alignment. It is critical. And the reason I like to lean into the revenue department is because if you get away the silos that are typically found in sales and marketing and you put them together into one group, now the marketing people are vested in the idea of how can I support the sales team to close more business and we all generate revenue? Alignment has to be tight. So let's go back to our reference reel conversation. You and I didn't say, okay, Mike, get your camera out. We're going to drive around the country and do that. We're going to say, hey, marketing, this is what we need to help us here, right? We need a reference reel with 20 clients, each with a 30 second clip talking about how great square two is so people don't have reference calls. And marketing says, yes, I understand how that piece of content could really help close the deal. We'll work on that and we'll get it to you. And then you promise to use it in the process. And we're all working together. We're all aligned as your question goes in order to get to the ultimate goal, which is revenue. So for example, if we're now um, going into a new uh, uh, vertical, right? We, uh, we want to attack Midwest manufacturers, but we don't have any um, assets that talk about our expertise in that. I have to go to marketing and say, hey, marketing, I need a landing page. I need a case study. I need a, uh, a infographic that will help me explain why my company <clears throat> should be the obvious choice for you to hire in this scenario. Or it could go the other way. Marketing, which typically is controlling the data, see two episodes ago, they can say, hey, guys, we see that there's a big gap between when you give the proposal and when the people sign. What could we do as marketers to help you close that gap? So they're looking at the data and then suggesting things to the salespeople. Once again, alignment is critical. So I wish, and I don't think it's going to happen in my lifetime, that we could get rid of sales and marketing and smush them all together into revenue. 
One revenue department would be completely aligned on generating the revenue and supporting each other because we understand that everybody has different jobs within the revenue department. My job is to generate leads. Your job is to close leads. Let's work together to get it all done. Yeah, I mean, we are seeing more chief revenue officers, I think, than we've seen. I know, but to be honest, I I agree with you on that, but I think sometimes it's a name only. And we're starting... You know what I'm saying? Like, hey, we'll yeah, get a chief yeah. revenue officer. We used to call it the VP of sales, but yeah, now we're going yeah. chief revenue officer because that's hip. Yeah, yeah. I, I think you're right. But maybe that's like one step in the right direction. Right? I think it's in a great direction by putting just revenue as the focus of that person's title, who's typically going to be either C-suite or senior leadership. It's a huge step forward to thinking differently about the siloed sales and marketing problem. Yeah, I agree. I mean, if you would just tuck the marketing team under them, you'd probably be better off as well. But it depends, Mike. That, it depends. Cause if it's an online business, then sales should tuck under marketing. Yeah, sure. Why not? Awesome. Thanks, Eric. That was uh, amazing. We got to all the questions and uh, really appreciate everybody submitting questions. It makes the show great when we can answer your questions. So um, thanks everybody for joining. Stay tuned. Next, uh, next week, episode 15, we're going to actually go and do a deep dive into the CRM because we talked a little bit about the CRM today, but we're not really doing it justice. And our episode next week is to really go into a great degree of detail into how the CRM can actually help you improve revenue. Um, we'll have some very specific examples and we'll talk about some of the very specific uh, advantages to having a highly functional, highly uh, organized, highly effective CRM to help you drive revenue. So thanks everybody for attending. Check out the show on YouTube. We will post it uh, later today, first thing tomorrow. Check out the show on our website, What's Wrong With Revenue, bottom of the page in the footer of the Square Two Marketing website. And very likely tomorrow, all this episode will be on all your favorite podcast platforms, Stitcher, iTunes, um, Podbean, And um, I know I'm forgetting one. And the fourth one. (laughs) And uh, obviously subscribe to the show, submit your questions. If you're interested, like us, share us, help us with some comments. We're trying to design a show that satisfies your desire to get better at driving revenue for your business. Thanks for joining us. We really appreciate Eric. Say goodbye to everybody. Bye to everybody. Have a great day. And we'll talk to you soon. Thanks. Bye-bye.